Welcome to Falling Through the Cracks. Feel alive and thrive with Dr. Rebecca Risk. Do you ever feel that even though nothing seems seriously wrong and you pass all the medical tests, that you still feel that your health, pain, and fatigue are completely out of control? It doesn't have to be that way. Listen to the tips and suggestions given on our program today and take back control of your health. Now, here is Dr. Rebecca Risk. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Falling Through the Cracks. Today, we're welcoming Dr. Darren Ingalls. He is a respected leader in natural medicine with more than 26 years' experience in the healthcare field. Dr. Ingalls has been published extensively and is the author of The Lyme Solution, a five-part plan to fight the inflammatory autoimmune response and beat Lyme disease, a comprehensive natural approach. It is a comprehensive natural approach to treating Lyme, and we are discussing this today because May is Lyme Awareness Month. Um, So, uh, Dr. Ingalls, welcome to the show. Oh, thanks, Rebecca. Um, so, what inspired you to write this book about Lyme? Well, uh, that was easy. I actually got Lyme disease. <laughs> so, you know, there's nothing like a little uh, personal experience to uh, give you a very quick education on uh, the disease that you're dealing with. So, I actually got infected about three weeks before I opened my own practice back in 2002. Uh, living in Connecticut. And, you know, I had classic Lyme disease. I had, you know, a headache, a high fever, swollen glands, joint pain, back pain, numbness, tingling, the whole gamut. And uh, I had meningitis when I was in college. I thought I had meningitis again. And as I was on my way to the hospital, uh, someone noticed I had a big bullseye rash on the back of my leg. Uh, Of course, it was behind me. I couldn't see it. So I didn't know that's what it was. So once I saw the bullseye rash, I, uh, you know, I knew what it was Lyme. I knew it was Lyme, and so I went and started on antibiotic therapy. And after four days of treatment, I was really perfectly fine. Uh, it just so happens, you know, being a new business owner, I was doing everything. So after about eight months of working very long days, I started to relapse and get symptoms again. I went back on antibiotics and it didn't do anything, and then I changed antibiotics and it didn't do anything. So I went through about eight or nine months of changing antibiotic protocols and really was getting worse. So I was fortunate that I had a a couple of patients that had worked with a doctor in New York City named Dr. Zhang. So I went to see him and uh, he started treating me with Chinese herbal formulas. And really after about three or four weeks of treatment, I was about 80, 85% better. So it was really kind of my enlightening moment that uh, there's a lot more to Lyme disease than just trying to kill the bug. And clearly antibiotics were not doing it for me. Uh, so I had to start relooking at my life and what I was doing and then realizing I wasn't sleeping well and hadn't been eating well and really just hadn't been taking care of myself. So that was my kick in the pants to, you know, uh, start living a better, healthier life and doing what I've been advising my patients to do. And also realizing that, you know, there was so much more to Lyme, again, than just the the infection. And it really sort of transformed into a much broader, complex medical problem. So uh, I think that's one of the beauty about herbs, and we'll probably talk about that a little bit later. But uh, it really, I think, you know, started addressing a lot of the other issues that Lyme creates uh, beyond just the initial infection. So... You know, having applied what I did for myself then to, you know, the patients I was treating, and now, you know, almost 20 years later and thousands of patients, I've found that, you know, this is a, I think for a lot of people, a much better approach to treating Lyme because they said, you know, the antibiotics come with, you know, potential risks and side effects. 
whereas, you know, herbs are generally uh, more gentle on the body. And uh, I just found that this uh, approach uh, was getting people better without, you know, the adverse side effects that antibiotic therapy usually creates. So, you know, that was really the impetus behind writing the book is I just wanted to have a roadmap that uh, people could follow. And I, I've worked with so many people around actually the world now that are in areas that aren't necessarily considered endemic for Lyme disease. And they're told they don't have Lyme. You can't have Lyme. And, you know, just kind of ridiculous statements. So uh, I wanted a tool that people could pick up. And the book is really written to be a, a patient guide of, you know, step by step. Here's what you do from beginning to end uh, so that, you know, anybody can pick it up and follow it. Well, you know, um, th- thank you for sharing all of that. Um, you know, as my listeners know, my, my journey also um, includes, you know, persistent Lyme. Um, I am symptom-free at the moment and have been for a long time. But um, there there is a... I, I think that this is why a lot of us bring... We have to get bitten and get infected to, to realize that we have to help people. And, yeah, uh, you know. it's, a, it's a tough way to go, but uh, yeah. I mean, I can say, you know, you know, as you know, having gone through the experience yourself, it, it gives you a very interesting perspective, unique perspective on, you know, what so many Lyme patients go through. And, and really over the course of, you know, many, many years of, you know, being symptom-free and relapsing and going through a lot of the same kind of things, it certainly makes it easier to understand when people tell you about kind of all the crazy things that Lyme can do your body. And I'm like, yep, I know that, been there, done that. Uh, So at some level, it really, uh, I think it helps us connect with our patients a little bit better because, you know, we know what they're going through. We've been through it. You know, and I've also tried, you know, pretty much every therapy out there for Lyme that you've heard of. And so uh, having had experience in that area as well uh, definitely makes it easier to, to help people. Well, and, and, you know, the, we don't need to go into the, the politics very much. I actually discussed them last week with Mary Beth Pfeiffer um, about her book, um, Lyme, the First Epidemic of Climate Change. And, you know, she talks a lot about the Lyme Wars. And, um, you know, by 2050, we're all going to be in endemic areas. And that's actually not very far from now. So right. um, hopefully we can bring this awareness before that happens so people can protect themselves before they get infected but if they do so happen to um, get infected by Lyme um, hopefully you and I are going to be able to help them and that's what I want us to talk about in this show. Yeah well as I'm sure you're aware you know I think you know North America as a whole uh, you know if you can at least in the United States if you live outside of you know New England or the central Midwest you know Lyme is really kind of downplayed yet we've got you know, evidence, you know, even through the CDC that, you know, Lyme's reported in every state. And in fact, you probably saw there was an article that was published last week that showed that, you know, birds were really the main reason that we're spreading these ticks around the country. So this concept that, you know, you live in Arizona, Texas, uh, other parts of North America that, you know, aren't considered endemic for Lyme, you know, it's just just not true. You know, these ticks have migrated away from their their probably normal habitat. And in fact, in New Jersey, there was an article that came out maybe a month ago showing that we have ticks there that are normally only found in Asia, and they found it in a sheep uh, in New Jersey. And so the fact that we're seeing these ticks go all over the place. And when I was at ILADS last year, 
You know, they had doctors coming from Africa talking about, you know, Lyme in Africa. And gosh, you would have thought there were ticks out in the middle of the desert. <laughs> so, you know, it's really a, a worldwide problem. And, uh, and I'm sure as you talked about last week, you know, World Health Organization has pointed to climate change as being a big driver of that. But, um, you know, I, I think the earlier we can get people diagnosed and treated, you know, the better off we're going to be. So that, you know, it really is about educating healthcare providers that, you know, Lyme is real, it exists, it's a problem. And when you've got these people that have these mysterious, you know, collection of symptoms that you haven't been able to identify, you know, it really should be on the radar that, hey, maybe it's Lyme or some sort of tick-borne infection. Well, well, exactly. Now, um, when, when you described your story, um, you have this bullseye rash and all of that. Now, I, I didn't get a, a bullseye rash, and I it's actually quite rare. Um, can you just tell us how somebody can know that this is something that they should look into? What what symptoms should they have, and and how do they go about getting tested? Well, in terms of the symptoms, you know, the problem with Lyme is that it mimics a lot of other conditions. And we call it the great imitator, the great mimic. And there's upwards of 100 different symptoms associated with Lyme. Ironically, I'm actually one of the few cases I've seen in my own practice, you know, in almost 20 years of practice that had classic Lyme disease with all of the symptoms you read about in the medical textbooks. I think what happens more often than not is that people get this vague collection of symptoms. But the big red flags for me, you know, outside of, you know, headache and fever and joint pain and uh, numbness and tingling and swollen glands and fever and chills and all that, the, the, the symptoms, of course, you know, the bullseye rash, if it does happen, uh, is a telltale sign. There's no other, you know, organism that causes that kind of rash. Now, we also know that the rash associated with Lyme isn't always a bullseye rash. There's a myriad of different looking rashes that can be Lyme related. But again, when you see these kind of weird rashes that pop out of nowhere, and the big thing about the Lyme rash typically is it doesn't tend to be itchy or raised. So it's not like eczema or psoriasis or some of these other skin conditions. But when you see these red spots that usually tend to get pretty big, uh, they're not raised, they're not itchy, uh, they come out of nowhere. Uh, particularly in conjunction with these other symptoms, that would raise a red flag for me. The other thing that's very typical, at least for Lyme, is what we call migratory joint pain or wandering joint pain. When you talk about one day, you know, it's your right shoulder, the next day it's your left knee, the next day it's your right ankle. When you start to see this joint pain move from one body part to another, again, as far as we know, there's no other uh, uh, condition that causes that other than Lyme. You know, when it's rheumatoid arthritis or some other type of autoimmune disease, it tends to be the same joint all the time. So uh, when you see it kind of move from body part to body part, uh, that makes me very suspicious. And even just, you know, someone who's got this collection of sort of, you know, arthritic and neurological conditions, I think you have to investigate Lyme and these tick-borne illnesses just because, again, that's a pretty narrow window of different things that can trigger both, you know, connective tissue and neurological symptoms. I mean, there are other things, too, but, you know, when you look at other conditions that look like Lyme, I mean, it's, you know, chronic fatigue and fibromyalgia and MS and Alzheimer's and Parkinson's and Lou Gehrig's disease. And, uh, you know, there's just so many different conditions that often get, you know, misdiagnosed. Um, and I think, you know, it's something, again, that at least as a healthcare provider should definitely be on their radar. But as a patient, you know, when you've got these mysterious symptoms that, you know, you've gone to the doctor, you've run numerous tests, and it keeps coming back negative, 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 uh, 
that by itself, if, if I hear that history and I'll ask, you know, have you ever been tested for any kind of tick-borne illness? And if they say no, well, that's the next thing on our list that we need to rule out. And I'll give you just a quick great example. I have a, a little girl I'm working with uh, here in California who uh, started out of the blue just getting headaches. She's eight years old. So it's so odd to have a child to get headaches, persistent headaches, daily at that age. And uh, she had an MRI, and it was basically normal. And she's been to an ENT, and she's been to a neurologist, and she's been to all these other doctors, and everything keeps coming up negative. And I said, well, you know, you don't really have a lot of other symptoms, but, you know, let, let's test you for Lyme disease. And I actually just got her report back yesterday, and she's even CDC positive for Lyme. So today we're going to have that conversation about treating Lyme. But here in a child, I mean, really her only presenting symptom was this daily kind of dull headache. So, um, you know, any kind of persistent uh, neurological uh, condition should definitely uh, raise a red flag for people. So um, how do you, does somebody go about getting tested as well? I mean, it would be hard with, with that myriad of symptoms. I mean, there are some diseases that we could look at and say, okay, we should be tested if you have that, but a mild headache, you know, not everybody knows that. But then there's the, the testing. So what do you recommend people do to find out that they do have Lyme or to rule it out? Yeah, unfortunately, you know, I was a microbiologist before I was a doctor. I actually used to do these tests for a living, and Lyme testing is terrible at best, <laughs> you know, horrible at its worst. And, you know, the standard two-tier testing that the CDC recommends we know is not very sensitive, which means the likelihood of it picking up the disease that you're testing for is low. A good lab test actually will be at least 95% sensitive. What we know from the research is that the current testing is only about 43% sensitive. So really, it doesn't even pick up half the people that actually have the condition. And even then, that test is really only designed for people when they're in the acute phases of Lyme. So if someone got exposed years ago, uh, the likelihood of that test being positive is pretty low. So what I do in my clinic is that you know we, we don't use general reference labs for Lyme testing. They're just not reliable. So there are a handful of uh, labs out there that do more sensitive testing, more specific Lyme testing. Uh, so we use labs like Medical Diagnostic Labs in New Jersey. Uh, we use Igenex in Palo Alto, California. Uh, we use uh, Global Lyme Diagnostics, which is a new lab that came out last year. And uh, I'm very excited about this particular lab because they've isolated a sequence on the Borrelia organism that's common to all Borrelia. You know, unfortunately, the lab testing that's currently available really only looks at Borrelia burgdorferi, which is the first strain of Lyme that we identified in Connecticut back in, you know, the early 80s. But we now know that there's upwards of 100 different strains of Borrelia in the United States alone. So uh, the fact that the test is only looking at one of them not difficult to consider that, you know, we're missing a lot of other Lyme cases because we're looking at the wrong organism. So this new lab uh, is now looking at a sequence that's common to all Borrelia, and I've run it in parallel with other labs, and even when other labs tend to come up negative, this one comes up positive. So this is now part of my routine uh, workup for people where I'm worried about Lyme. Uh, I run this test usually in conjunction with either MDL or IgenX that looks more at the antibody test. Uh, and then sometimes we'll use Armin labs. Uh, they're based out of Germany, but they're an, a non-antibody test. So they're looking at cytokine activity, which is a sign of immune activation. 
so, you know, we use kind of a collection of different labs depending on where we think people are in their process, how long ago we think they were exposed. Uh, and, but, you know, people need to know that there are labs out there that can give you better information. At the end of the day, you know, Lyme is a clinical diagnosis. It is based on your collection of symptoms. So you go through the process and you test for Lyme. If it comes back positive, great. We know that's what we're dealing with. If it comes back negative, unfortunately, it still doesn't exclude the possibility of having Lyme. But you also have to go through the process of ruling out other conditions. So we'll do other blood tests to rule out other autoimmune diseases, other types of infectious agents. Uh, you know, I've got a whole battery of uh, labs that we run routinely uh, just to make sure it's not something else. You know, mold, for example, is one that commonly looks like Lyme disease. So if someone's had toxic mold exposure, that can make them feel very sick. So sometimes we have to rule out mold. Uh, so, again, I talk about it more in the book, but uh, there is a, a whole list of labs that people can run uh, that will give you better information about what's going on. Well, perfect. Thank you so much. We're going to take a quick break today. We're talking with Dr. Darren Ingalls, and we're discussing his book, The Lyme Solution. We'll be back shortly. The future of online TV is here. View exclusive content from your favorite talk radio hosts and new programs that you can't see anywhere else. Visit voiceamerica.tv today. The Voice America Live Events Channel is here now to showcase your corporate, individual, or organization's live event. Visit voiceamerica.com forward slash live events to see all of our past live events and find out more. Whether it's a multi-day conference, special speaker, or single-day event, we've got everything to make your event a success. We can do a few hours or a few days. For more information about taking your event to the next level, call Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or email info at voiceamerica.com. Again, that's Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or send us an email to info at voiceamerica.com. Voice America is where you are and where you want to be. Join us around the globe as we broadcast live from some of the most interesting events available. Don't forget to view all our live events, including on-demand access to past events that you may have missed by visiting voiceamerica.com forward slash live events. Is email an important part of your business? It is for us. That's why Voice America partners with MailJet. MailJet lets us create impactful newsletters and deliver them right to the inbox fast. Microsoft, MIT, and Avis trust MailJet for their emailing, and so should you. Go to MailJet.com and use the promo code VOICEAMERICA to start emailing for free today. what's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network by keeping up with us on Twitter. You can find us at Voice America TRN. You are listening to Falling Through the Cracks with your host, Dr. Rebecca Risk. To reach the program today, please call in to 1-866-472-5792. Again, that's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email directly to Dr. Risk. The email address is anantacalgary at gmail.com. Now, back to Falling Through the Cracks. Feel alive and thrive. Hi, everybody. Welcome back. Today, we're talking with Dr. Darren Ingalls. He is the author of The Lyme Solution. So, um, 
Dr. Ingalls, you know, we talked about how to to recognize that you do have Lyme. And one thing you talk about in your book um, is that antibiotics don't always work. Can you just tell us a little bit about that? Because that's the the first response that people go to, um, you know, is I need antibiotics, I, I, you know, and their doctors will scare them as well. Um, But I mean, can you just explain what you're talking about in your book? Sure. Well, you know, I think, again, antibiotics definitely have a place. I mean, for someone who has acute Lyme disease, I mean, I prescribe and I recommend antibiotics. Again, I think there's good evidence that that's the appropriate treatment at the time. But most of the patients I'm working with, you know, either A, you know, they've been exposed to Lyme many years ago, or they've already gone down that pathway of having been on antibiotics and really did not improve. You know, the the counter side to the antibiotics is that, of course, you know, they're going to wipe out a lot of your normal microbiome, and we just have so much research coming out about the importance of these beneficial gut microbes and how they modulate your immune system and do so many other, you know, healthy things for our body. So the more that we eliminate those, the, the more difficult it's going to be for our immune system to do what we want to do. And I don't think that people realize that, you know, your gut's responsible for upwards of 80% of your immune function. So if the gut's not functioning well, then the immune system inherently doesn't function well. So there's sort of this paradox that, you know, the, uh, the treatment you're doing to try and, you know, clear the infection is sort of accidentally damaging your own body. And when you're on antibiotics long term, you know, we know that uh, it can actually start damaging your mitochondria. And the mitochondria, for people who don't know, are part of your cell that literally create energy. You know, we know from the research that Lyme disease itself damages the mitochondria. Then you've got the antibiotics that pile on top of that and perhaps make that situation worse. So for people with Lyme who suffer from persistent fatigue, you know, it's very, very difficult to get over that that fatigue hump when you've got all these things, you know, working against it. So, you know, I think there's this... uh, misunderstanding that, you know, herbs just aren't as strong as antibiotics. They just don't work well. And I would just say, well, these are people who really don't know herbs very well. <laughs> you know, that's not true at all. In fact, uh, Dr. Eva Sappi at the University of New Haven, if you're familiar with her work, she's actually researched at least some of these herbs and actually found that they work better than doxycycline, where doxycycline only, you know, deals with Lyme when it's in its uncoiled form. We know that the herbs deal with Lyme in its three different forms. So whether it's uncoiled or balled up in its round body form, you know, the herbs actually work very well. So you could argue, at least in a Petri dish, that the herbs are more effective than the antibiotics. So I think, you know, when you think about what plants do, uh, they do so much more than just killing the organism. You know, plants as a whole tend to have a lot of different, you know, chemical components to them that do various things. So they may be anti-inflammatory. They may help with circulation. They may help with, uh, you know, blood flow. They may help with, you know, uh, reducing inflammation. I mean, they just do so many different things that uh, I don't think people realize that's part of what they're doing. You know, we focus so much on just killing the bug, we kind of forget about all these other things that Lyme's doing to the body. And certainly for someone who's had persistent Lyme disease, I think there's pretty good evidence that, you know, the infection really isn't the problem anymore. You know, one of my contentions in my book is that, you know, Lyme really becomes an autoimmune problem. And again, we have research to support that. So I think the reason so many people end up with persistent Lyme where the antibiotics really just aren't helping very much is at that point, it's not about the the bug. It's really about all the immune disruption that's happened as a result of the bug. 
So, you know, when I realized that, you know, Lyme was really an autoimmune problem and I started approaching it differently, you know, that's where I started seeing a lot of these long-term Lyme patients really start to improve. So, um, you know, antibiotics definitely have their place, but uh, I think, you know, certainly for chronic or persistent Lyme disease, um, for most people, they're probably going to be disappointed with the results. Well, you know, I'm 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 glad you've you've brought up a lot of the topics that you have. Um, you know, as a doctor of Chinese medicine, I definitely agree with you about herbs. I find, you know, they're all encompassing. So you have somebody that has this infection, but they also need some other support in another way. And you know, you're giving them less to take and helping support their body while you're actually treating the infection, um, which most people appreciate when they're as sick as they are and they do need to take, um, you know, more than one thing um but but there's also the, this component of you know um as you said it, it's not oh it's not always the line that that's causing the issue there can be the autoimmune issue or um other infections or there can be mold um and those are things of course the antibiotics aren't going to cover um they're right. they're going to actually make those things um worse if it's not treated properly well, I'm always kind of amazed that, uh, again, I've seen people who've been on antibiotics for months, years, uh, who really aren't any better. And look, I, I'm all for anything that works. You know, I, I said I've got nothing bad to say about any therapy out there if it's working well for you. I mean, at the end of the day, that's what's most important is that you improve, you feel better, you get your, your life back. But, you know, if you're doing any therapy, I mean, including antibiotics, and, you know, you're not getting better, or like in my case, I was actually getting worse. You know, where do you draw a line in the sand and say, hey, this really isn't the right approach. I really need to look at something different. But, you know, what I'm seeing in the antibiotic world is that, you know, we've moved to stronger and stronger and stronger, you know, combinations of antibiotics. I mean, the, you know, the, the current combination that a lot of ILATS doctors are using, I mean, we've pulled out, you know, a drug that we used to use for leprosy. I mean, it's very toxic. You have to go in every week to get your blood drawn to make sure it's not damaging you. I've had one patient uh, who was on continuous antibiotics for 12 years in a row. She was hospitalized three times because of the antibiotics. And, you know, where do you say, you know, enough's enough? You know, again, I think we've had a handful of studies out there showing even after antibiotic therapy that Lyme persists. And, you know, Dr. Horowitz talks a lot about these persister cells. and, uh, and, And, again, there's some good research showing that, you know, there's this percentage of these Borrelia that are really very resistant to antibiotic therapy. And uh, again, I think the concept of just having to kill the bug uh, maybe falls a bit short. Uh, We don't even know that you ever get rid of the bug completely anyway. I mean, I'd be willing to bet if I tested everybody in New England, probably 80% of the people would show some evidence of exposure to Lyme and then they don't all have Lyme disease. So, uh, you know, does this bug, you know, kind of become part of your normal flora at some point? Um, you know, we don't really know because, you know, culturing Lyme has been proved to be very difficult. The one lab that was available that did that is no longer in existence. So um, we're still depending on antibody responses to measure our exposure to Lyme, but without being able to measure it directly, it's really difficult to know whether we completely eradicate the organism or not. I'm of the opinion that I don't think we do. I've just seen so many patients that go, you know, months, years of being symptom-free and then relapse, and particularly when they relapse at times a year where there aren't necessarily a lot of ticks out there, it just doesn't seem as likely that it's a new infection, that it's probably a relapse of an old infection. So 
I, I believe that uh, Lyme is something that once you get exposed to is probably part of you for your life. It's kind of like, you know, when you get chicken pox as a five-year-old, you can get shingles as a 55-year-old. It's the same virus that stays in your body for 50 years. It just becomes opportunistic. And much like shingles, you know, I think it's about keeping your immune system happy, you know, feeding the terrain, making sure that the rest of your body is functioning well. And if you can keep, you know, the rest of your body doing what you want to do and keep your immune system happy, uh, I think that's what gets a lot of people uh, feeling better. Uh, and, again, I see people who, you know, had Lyme and they've been doing well and then they come across some very stressful event in their life, like, you know, the death of a family member or a divorce, and that sets their symptoms off again. So uh, I think we as practitioners, you know, if we start uh, trying to really do our job to get the body healthy, uh, and that's really kind of what my book's about is, you know, that step-by-step process of, you know, how do we help, you know, uh, fix the terrain so that it's optimized to, uh, you know, function at its best. So one of the things you, you talk about in your book about getting healthy, it's actually one of the first things you go into is um, your gut. So how important is that in this journey? Well, it's critical. And as I mentioned, you know, the gut's responsible for so many different things. Of course, you no know, digestion, absorption of your nutrients, which drives everything in your body is the first part. But the, that effect of the microbes in your immune system is critical. And, you know, we've, again, we've just seen so much research really in the last decade coming out about the importance of your microbiome. And I mean, not just with the immune system, but for mood and weight and, you know, all these other processes is driven by, you know, your balance of gut microbes. So, you know, we know from animal studies, you know, when you give a rat one dose of antibiotics, I mean, that's one dose, not one day, one dose. It takes six months to repopulate its gut back to normal. So what happens when we've been on antibiotics for, you know, weeks to months? And uh, I think realistically it takes a very long time to get our gut back to where it should be. And so many people, you know, they start to repopulate their gut and then, you know, they get a sinus infection, go on another round of antibiotics. And, you know, it's very common in modern society that people get courses of antibiotics intermittently over the course of years that, uh, that constantly disrupts the, uh, the gut and ultimately the immune system. So. You know, what the, that, that first part of the plan is really about is, you know, how do we repair the gut? How do we fix it? You know, I think we as practitioners see so many people with what we call leaky gut. You know, the gut just allows too many large proteins to pass through, which are very immunogenic, and they stimulate your immune system in a negative way. And so a lot of people I see with chronic Lyme, you know, they've got food allergies. They've got chronic constipation and diarrhea and gas and bloating. And again, sort of this uh, litany of, you know, gastrointestinal symptoms. So it's really about uh, using herbs and nutrients to help repair the gut, rebuild the microbes, and, you know, get the start functioning better again. So, um, you know, obviously there would be some probiotics involved. You know, is there a diet that you recommend people follow through as well? Yeah, that's really the second part of the plan. And, you know, having done various diets over the years with patients, uh, what I found seems to be uh, sustainable for people. You know, a lot of diets, because of their difficulty, uh, you know, people sometimes just have a hard time sticking with it. So what I recommend is what's called an alkaline diet. And an alkaline diet is kind of a hybrid of a paleo diet. And what happens in the paleo diet is that people tend to eat a very low-carbohydrate, high-protein diet. But in the paleo diet, the protein intake tends to be pretty large for most people anyway. 
So what an alkaline diet suggests is that you're still eating a mostly plant-based diet, but we try and limit animal protein to about 80% of your dietary intake for the week or less. So it kind of goes back to, I think, our true hunter-gatherer days where, you know, we didn't kill every day. We killed when we could. So animal protein was not the bulk of our diet. And I think this kind of speaks a little bit closer to that. Uh, and then I have some foods that we just know are very acid-forming in the body. So the basis of an alkaline diet really is that we're trying to have you eat foods that make your body more alkaline. And the reason is, is that physiologically, your cells function best in an alkaline state, with the exception of your stomach, your bladder, and for women, the vaginal area, which is very acidic to help protect against outside invaders. The rest of your body is actually very alkaline. So the whole purpose of this diet is to really promote better alkalinity in the body. So there are some foods that are very acid-forming, so things like you know dairy products, uh, processed foods and junk foods, a lot of sugary foods, coffee, uh, all tend to be very acid-forming. So these are foods that said, look, they're very acid-forming. Acid Let's eliminate them from your diet completely. Uh, but again, I find this is a diet that people can actually follow. They don't feel deprived on. Uh, they still have a lot of different foods they can eat and like to eat. And again, even for animal protein, for people who are big meat eaters, it's not that you can't have it. It just doesn't become the bulk of every single meal. So uh, again, I find it's something that people can uh, sustain, they can follow long term, and it really does become part of your lifestyle. You know, this is not really designed just to be something you follow for a month and that's it. You know, you really start shifting the way you eat and, you know, the end product of acid formation really is inflammation. So at the end of the day, it's really an anti-inflammatory diet. Well, I mean, definitely that's something that we want when we're suffering as much as people do with Lyme is to bring the inflammation down in, in any way. And, um, you know, I find if, if people aren't willing to, to change their diet, um, I don't know at the end of their treatment if I've missed something or if it's because they're just not following through and they're recreating that inflammation all the time. Right. Well, I know, you know, from my own personal experience, I mean, I was a big coffee drinker. I love coffee. And I would find when I was in the throes of Lyme that, you know, even a sip of coffee, my neuropathy would flare within minutes. And, you know, I tested it over and over. And, yep, every time I have coffee, neuropathy gets worse. So, I mean, I had to go off coffee for years. I mean, I'm now at a point where I can have it occasionally and it doesn't seem to bother me. But I think when people are first starting off, and especially if they're not feeling well, you really want to be diligent with this to get the best results. Um, well, thank you for, for sharing that. So um, when when people have a lot of inflammation as well, this is very common with the Lyme, what do you recommend that they do? Well, for inflammation related to Lyme, of course, you know, treating the infection itself. I mean, I think there is benefit of treating the organism because, you know, the way I think of it is that, you know, if there's a million organisms in your body, that's going to stimulate a certain immune response. And if we can get that down to 100 organisms, there's less stuff to stimulate the immune system. So I think for people, you know, who've even been on antibiotics and say, look, I feel well when I'm on antibiotics, and when I come off, I feel worse again. I think a lot of that is really just about reducing the load of organism in the body. So again, I think this is where herbs come in that can be very beneficial, both again at treating the organism. And we have a lot of herbs that have anti-inflammatory effects. You know, curcumin's probably one herb that has the most research. Uh, you know, they've compared it to drugs like Vioxx and Celebrex, which are, you know, common anti-inflammatories that are prescribed. Uh, it works as well or better without the side effects. It doesn't tear up your stomach and cause other gastrointestinal problems. We've got herbs like Boswellia, 
We've got herbs like white willow bark, and of course, in Chinese medicine, I'm not a Chinese herbalist, so you can speak to that much better than I, but you know, we've got a lot of herbs in our uh, repertoire there that we can use to help reduce inflammation. So it's uh, really just a function of you know, uh, starting, it, uh, starting one of these herbal protocols and you know, uh, seeing how you respond, but uh, I've had really good success on getting inflammation down by using herbal medicines. Uh, I find cat's cloth also is another great herb for reducing inflammation. I mean, even before I really knew about Lyme disease, I would use cat's cloth for back pain. You know, I sit at a desk all day and my back would bother me and I would just take some cat's cloth. We've now learned that cat's cloth is a great anti-Lyme herb, uh, but it's also very potent anti-inflammatory. So again, we got a lot of very good things that we can use that just don't disrupt your gut. Oh, perfect. Um, We're going to take a quick break. We're talking today with Dr. Darren Ingalls, and we're discussing his book, The Lyme Solution. We'll be back shortly. The future of online TV is here. View exclusive content from your favorite talk radio hosts and new programs that you can't see anywhere else. Visit voiceamerica.tv today. The Voice America Live Events Channel is here now to showcase your corporate, individual, or organization's live event. Visit voiceamerica.com forward slash live events to see all of our past live events and find out more. Whether it's a multi-day conference, special speaker, or single-day event, we've got everything to make your event a success. We can do a few hours or a few days. For more information about taking your event to the next level, call Jeff Spinard at 480 294 6417 or email info at voiceamerica.com Again, that's Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or send us an email to info at voiceamerica.com Voice America is where you are and where you want to be. Join us around the globe as we broadcast live from some of the most interesting events available. Don't forget to view all our live events, including on-demand access to past events that you may have missed by visiting voiceamerica.com forward slash live events. Is email an important part of your business? It is for us. That's why Voice America partners with MailJet. MailJet lets us create impactful newsletters and deliver them right to the inbox fast. Microsoft, MIT, and Avis trust MailJet for their emailing, and so should you. Go to MailJet.com and use the promo code VOICEAMERICA to start emailing for free today. what's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network by keeping up with us on Twitter. You can find us at Voice America TRN. You are listening to Falling Through the Cracks with your host, Dr. Rebecca Risk. To reach the program today, please call in to 1-866-472-5792. Again, that's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email directly to Dr. Risk. The email address is anantacalgary at gmail.com. Now, back to Falling Through the Cracks. Feel alive and thrive. Hi, 
everybody. Welcome back. Uh, today we're talking with Dr. Darren Ingalls. He is the author of The Lyme Solution. So, Dr. Ingalls, um, one thing that is very common with Lyme, which I think is important to talk about, is herxing. Um, this is, although a, a, a technical term, herxheimer, um, used a lot, mostly in the Lyme world. Can you just explain to us what that is and what that means for people who are doing treatment? Sure. Well, you know, Herxing is a very common, so, you know, technically it's the Gerosh-Herxheimer reaction, uh, obviously named after the two doctors who discovered it. And what it is, is it's really, it's the effect of, uh, it's really a die-off reaction by uh, treating Lyme, and it happens with other organisms as well. And it's really a combination of two things. It's the release of a lot of these endotoxins from the organism itself, uh, but it's also the immune activity against the organism, particularly these group of immune molecules called cytokines. So the combination of the two produces basically flu-like symptoms. So you can feel more tired and a headache and achy and sore and just kind of, you know, blah. So, you know, when people start undergoing Lyme treatment, whether it's antibiotics or herbs, it can happen with both. Uh, you know, people often experience this reaction. And it's interesting, I've heard from other doctors that, you know, you have to get this reaction to know that your treatment's working. I can tell you personally, I never got a Herx reaction when I went through any therapy, ever. So I don't believe you have to get this Herx reaction to know that your therapy is working well. You know, if you start to improve clinically and you get less joint pain and your energy's better and everything like that, you know it's working. So if you experience it, don't panic. Uh, it's not uncommon. But if you don't experience it either, uh, don't panic either. It doesn't mean that your treatment's not working. Uh, it's just, you know, it varies quite a bit from person to person and how their body reacts to the, the treatment. But for people who do experience the reaction, again, fortunately, there's quite a few things we can do to help mitigate that. You know, one of my favorite therapies, and it kind of comes out of uh, my work as an environmental medicine doctor, because we use it for other people who get uh, allergic reactions, uh, is we start alkalizing the body. And there's a few ways that you can do it. Uh, there's a product called Alka-Seltzer Gold that you can buy usually at most pharmacies. It's a different than Alka-Seltzer that people use for indigestion. But Alka-Seltzer Gold is a bicarbonate formula. And bicarbonate actually helps uh, reduce a lot of these Herx reactions. So Alka-Seltzer Gold works great. There's another product we use called Trisalts. And there's several companies that make Trisalts. But Trisalts is a combination of sodium, potassium, and calcium bicarbonate. And again, that bicarbonate, you know, starts to change your body pH. And in doing that, it still it starts to shut down a lot of that Herx reaction. So people can take these treatments, you know, every hour or two when they're in the throes of it to really kind of help blunt the reaction. And that works well. Again, we've also go back to herbs. And so uh, there's a, a herb called Berber that we use a lot of. It's a liquid tincture that can help uh, block a lot of that Herx reaction. In the, the Chinese herbal formulas, uh, Dr. Zhang has a great formula called AI number three. Uh, I've used a lot of that to help stop a lot of the Herx reactions. Uh, and of course, you can use a lot of your anti-inflammatories like curcumin and Boswellia. But uh, I think I've had the best success uh, with using uh, the alkalizing agents and Berber. 
Um, well, yeah, thank you for sharing that. Um, for my Canadian li- listeners, the Alka-Seltzer Gold isn't available in Canada, but definitely available in the States for anybody who wants to try that when they have issues. Um, you know, I was the opposite of you. Everything I did, I uh, herxed on. And um, uh-huh. when, I, when I started treatment, I wasn't warned about it. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, that was not very nice because I thought I only needed a month of antibiotics to deal with, you know, over uh, 14 years of illness and I was thrown into three antibiotics and realized this was years that I needed to yeah. to go into treatment. So then I, I took a different approach and I, I was so happy to read in your book that, um, you know, you, you talked about all the herbs basically that, um, you know, are, are dear to my heart as well. The Cowden Protocol, I believe, saved my life. I actually interviewed him last year, I think it was. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I think a lot of people in the Lyme world are familiar with some of that, but I'm, I'm so glad that there's a place where, like in your book, where people can... Um, find you know that all put together because at that time I, it was all over the place and I just read this little snippet and then I had to go and find that on my own. Yeah, well, you know, for uh, for your Canadian listeners, uh, with Alka Seltzer Gold, tri salts might be a bit harder to uh, find. You know, the the cheap, easy way is baking soda. You know, you can find baking soda everywhere. It's uh, sodium bicarbonate, which I don't think works as well as potassium bicarbonate. So that's really the key ingredient in Alka-Seltzer Gold is potassium bicarbonate. But again, you know, you can find Arm & Hammer baking soda everywhere, and uh, it doesn't taste very good. But again, if you're really herxing and you feel terrible, uh, you can probably pop down to your local grocery store, pick up uh, some Arm & Hammer baking soda. And, you know, for most adults, you know, half a teaspoon every hour or two often will help, uh, again, block a lot of that reaction. Well, perfect. So um, can you just explain, you know, um, just about some of the herbs that you you talk about in your book um, and how you would people would get started onto onto a program? Sure. Well, you know, there's so many different herbal protocols out there. And again, what I find is that, you know, everyone kind of has a different experience with each protocol. You know, from my personal experience, and again, in the patients I've treated, there's two protocols I really kind of highlight in my book. Uh, The first one was developed by Dr. Zhang. And again, he's the doctor I saw in New York City. And his are Chinese herbal formulas. And I'm sure your listeners are aware, you know, in Chinese medicine, you know, herbs are really never used singly like we do in Western medicine, uh, where we'll use one herb by itself. You know, Chinese herbs are always formulas, and those formulas are developed in a way to help balance each other for various reasons. So I find the least Hertz reactions with Dr. Zhang's formulas. I rarely see it in patients. Again, I never personally experienced it. So Dr. Zhang's formulas, again, I like because they encompass, I think, the broadest scope of what Lyme does to the body. So there's primarily five or six formulas that I use, and again, they help kill the organism. And the other thing, too, is you know, we've talked so much about Lyme, but we haven't talked about co-infection, but I like the herbs because the herbs really address pretty much all the co-infections as well. So whether you have Bartonella, Babesia, Anaplasma, Ehrlichia, Rickettsia, you know, the herbs seem to address all of them. So, you know, we really are kind of killing, you know, more than two birds with one stone. So his formulas address the organisms. They are anti-inflammatory. There's a formula to improve circulation. There's another one to help to boost the immune system. 
So again, I find that combination actually works really well. I've also used a modified version of Dr. Cowden's protocol. Dr. Cowden's protocol, you know, every month you keep changing the herbs and it's a bit uh, labor intensive and kind of expensive. So uh, Dr. Sappy's work, uh, again, she really looked at just a, a few of those formulas. And I've just, again, just found clinically that I just use four of his formulas. I use Cemento, Banderol, Kumanda, and Berber. And again, I find for a lot of people that combination actually works really well without having to get into the whole protocol. Uh, it's just cheaper, easier, and again, clinically, I think, you know, those are the herbs that are doing a lot of the heavy lifting in the protocol. Uh, beyond that, you know, uh, you know, Byron White, who's an herbalist, has, you know, specific herbs depending on what infection you're treating. Uh, Susan McCamish at Beyond Balance has, you know, various herbs. Again, there's not really a protocol, but there are herbs to address each of the different, you know, uh, Lyme and co-infections. Uh, of course, Stephen Buhner has his protocol of addressing Lyme. And again, I think it encompasses a lot of what Lyme does to the body. So, you know, it's, it's really a function of what works best. You know, my approach is that you start an herbal protocol, whatever it is, and, you know, give it six to eight weeks to really give it a fair shake. And depending on how you feel at the end of that time, you know, if you feel like you're improving and things are, are better, you know, it's probably worth continuing. If you don't feel any difference whatsoever, you know, at that point it's probably worth trying something different. And, again, my experience has been that some people just do well with one protocol over another for no real logical reason. Uh, but uh, I'm, I'm also not uh, in favor of, you know, staying on the same protocol for months and months and months, seeing no improvement at all. You know, that's just kind of a waste of time and money. So you should see some element of improvement. Now, sometimes that improvement is fairly nominal, but at least it tells you in the right direction. You're heading in the right direction. And again, during that time, you know, we're usually also looking at all these other outside influencers that might be impacting your health, again, like diet and so forth. So, uh, you know, my book, again, outlines each of the different protocols. Um, and if people are really interested and they can't find it, uh, we have an online store. People are welcome, welcome to visit our website, and we do ship internationally. So if people are having a hard time finding it, uh, they can read the book about the protocols, and then uh, we have it available online. Well, um, I want to talk in your book, you talk a little bit about some of the other things that that can be a factor. Um, you know, we, I, I believe we shouldn't have Lyme blinders. Um, you know, Lyme is the only thing causing your symptoms. And, you know, sometimes patients come in, they're like, well, I have this symptom, but that's the Lyme. I have this, but that's the Lyme. And, and you know, it's important to actually step back from that thought sometimes and say, okay, but is it, is there something else going on here that that's missing? Um, you know, like you mentioned before, is there mold toxicity that's actually creating all these symptoms and you just feel sick in your house and that's why right. you're not getting better? Or And you talk a lot about this in your book. So can you just tell us some of the, the more common issues that you do see? Sure. Well, you know, I think there's a saying that if you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail. <laughs> so <laughs> I think for a lot of Lyme practitioners, you know, it's very easy to see everything through Lyme glasses. And you're right, you have to be able to be objective and stand back. And particularly if someone's already been on Lyme treatment and they haven't really responded very well, you know, that would sort of, you know, make me think that perhaps something else is going on. So mold, as I mentioned, is really the probably the top thing that looks like Lyme the most. Uh, and it can be either mycotoxicity or mold allergy. They're actually two different issues related to mold, but uh, both of those usually need to be investigated. You know, the other one that comes up a lot is SIBO, small intestine bacterial overgrowth. Uh, I've had several patients now that have Lyme-like symptoms, you know, particularly neuropathy. 
that again didn't really get better with Lyme treatment, and we tested them. You know, there's a breast test, this breast test that's available for SIBO to rule that out. And once we did SIBO treatment, uh, her neuropathy, you know, completely got better. So uh, that's one that you know, again, that, that can look like it. And again, even just looking at all these other autoimmune-related problems, you know, once in a while we do find that there is some other type of autoimmune process going on um, that's really completely unrelated to Lyme. And even, you know, gut microbes, I've seen this in a handful of patients that had Lyme-like symptoms, uh, and we found that they had an overgrowth of something like Klebsiella in their gut. Well, a lot of these other microbes can trigger a similar process. So, again, you know, it's not unique to Lyme to create autoimmunity. And when you go into the medical research, we'll find that there's a ton of microbes. So sometimes it's really just looking at other microbes, and perhaps it needs a different uh, treatment based on that microbe. So that's where, you know, for me, stool testing becomes very important because it can help identify if there's any kind of overgrowth of yeast, overgrowth of other bacteria, because all of those can mimic Lyme as well. Well, yeah, thank you for for sharing that. I think that's important um, to bring up all the other things that can happen. I always have to remind people, you're a human being, and you're not Lyme, so we have to look at the big picture of what's going on, what's your lifestyle, what's your house like, um, you know, and what else is going on that may be taking advantage of your weak immune system with the Lyme, but that there is more than just Lyme and and the co-infections that come with it. There's a bigger picture here. Absolutely. Well, I know I think we we all approach it from a whole person approach. You know, we're looking from top to bottom, all these other external factors. And uh, again, I think that's just really important when you're dealing not just with Lyme, but any chronic illness, that you really are taking a full evaluation of all these other, again, external factors that might be influencing your health and certainly your immune system. Oh, thank you so much. Um, Now, if anybody has any uh, questions, is there any way they can get a hold of you or find your book? Sure. Well, the book's available through pretty much every major uh, bookstore, retailer, online, Amazon. Uh, I'll, I'll carry it. Otherwise, they can c- contact me at my website, which is darreningelsnd.com. That's D-A-R-I-N-I-N-G-E-L-S-N-D.com. And we've got a lot of information about Lyme disease. We have a store if people are interested. Uh, we'd love people for follow us, and uh, again, we're really about trying to educate people about Lyme disease, and uh, I certainly want people to get better. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. This was a great show. Great. Thanks, Rebecca. I want to thank everybody for listening today. May is Lyme Awareness Month, and it is also when ticks are the most active. So please be sure that you know how to protect yourself and your family so you don't have to go through the process that uh, Darren and I talked about today. Um, Thank you so much for listening. We're talking with Dr. Darren Ingalls, and we're discussing his book, The Lyme Solution. Just be sure to make today a great day. Thank you for tuning in to this week's edition of Falling Through the Cracks. Feel alive and thrive. Please join Dr. Rebecca Risk again next Monday at noon Eastern Time and 9 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. We'll talk more next week. 